Hello and welcome to another podcast from Natural Direction, where we aim to bring you relevant, practical solutions to current leadership issues to help you build strong leading businesses and strong business leaders. This is Martin Coburn, and in this podcast, I'd like to talk about strengthening the case for a strengths-based approach to development. Post the crash of 2008, I found myself on the receiving end of a redundancy. Not that remarkable in itself, but what was remarkable was the fact that this was a firm that I'd spent the previous 13 years building, along with my partners, of course, and maybe I'll talk about that another time. Anyways, a chance to refresh and consider options. Firstly, there was absolutely no question in my mind I wanted to stay in the same field of work and persevere my passion for developing people. And I started to think about all the things that I've learned over the last 12 to 13 years. What did I really believe in? The one thing that stood out more than anything was the central idea that people perform way, way better and do their best work when they have the opportunity to do the things that they enjoy and make use of their natural strengths. It's when people are working with their nature, not against it, they optimise their performance. Working with and on things they are naturally gifted to do, but doing them in a purposeful direction and therefore bringing value to the organisations they work with. So I formed the business Natural Direction, created to help further this really important cause. No matter what the skill you're trying to develop, my belief is you have to find a natural way. Making use of proven strategies, of course, no harm in that, but it's never a cookie-cutter exercise, no one-size-fits-all. You are unique, and therefore, the goal is to make use of that uniqueness, not fight against it. So my goal in this podcast is to argue for why we need to make more of this, increasing the accepted notion that strengths-based development will reap you greater rewards and optimise the performance of the teams you lead, and lead to greater organisational success. So I'll cover some thoughts on why we are still lagging in the uptake of this wisdom, why I believe in working with our natural gifts is a much better way forward, and maybe some thoughts around the findings of neuroscience as to why we have such deep-seated obsession with fixing weaknesses, and why criticism inhibits our ability to learn and grow, and some ideas along the way to combat these challenges to encourage you to more willingly and wholeheartedly embrace a strengths-based approach. So over the last 10 years, there's no question, there has been some significant progress, no question. And we have seen great strides forward in people gradually starting to accept that a strengths-based approach to development will inevitably produce a higher achieving and a more motivated, engaged workforce. However, I'm not convinced we are moving fast enough. I don't see enough traction on these concepts that show up in a very practical way in terms of the way people manage and lead and indeed the way organisations reward and track progress of their employees. We only have to look around us and we see the changing landscape of work. We see the demands from employees are changing. They want to do more meaningful work, more purposeful work, and they quite rightly believe 
They should have greater opportunity within a shorter space of time. They seek choice and variety over the safe and predictable. So we have to have development methods and a mindset towards developing people that is consistent with this different and fast-paced and flexible way that people want to work. This makes for a much more attractive employee proposition. We need to make sure we align ourselves to saying what kind of talents and strengths do we really need this person to develop to do this particular task? And should we really be too worried about the fact that people are not going to be great at everything? I don't think so. We should be simply asking, what are the challenges that this role will present? What do we need from someone? What's the particular mix of skills, attributes, knowledge and attitude that will help someone or be required in order for someone to overcome these challenges? And then not be overly concerned with labouring people with over-cumbersome and detailed competency frameworks that cause people to think, well, I need to be great at everything to get promoted to the next level or take this next, next role. This just leads to disappointment and frustration and eventually disengagement. Think about it in terms of, is this person fit for the purpose, fit for the task? And then you'll be better placed to be able to find people who've got these natural talents and then utilise them. Better for them, better for the organisation. Think about it in terms of the convergence of what you enjoy what you are good at, and what are the needs of the organisation. The task of leaders is to simply get people playing into this place. You will have happier, more motivated and more productive employees as a result. There's an old Sioux Indian saying that says, no tree has branches so foolish as to fight amongst themselves. Nature works because it's left to do what it does well. Each species, plant, doing what nature intended. When each member works within their nature, within the natural ecological system, so to speak, things tend to work a lot better. I was talking to someone recently who built up a business over the last seven years, and he was explaining to me how he'd started to introduce different people, development frameworks. He felt that he needed to kind of professionalize the way that the, building, uh, the business was building. And with a view to preparing people for the next level of promotion. And then he started to reflect on the fact that here I am, and for all intents and purposes, a successful business person and a successful business. How did I get into this position? What did I rely on? And through further discussion, he realized that actually most of his learning was through failing forward, learning on the job, adjusting, finding out what he was good at and finding out doing things in a different way. It's much more dynamic and an entrepreneurial way of succeeding. This is in contrast to overprotecting and overpreparing people before we let them loose on a, a new task. The tendency is to approach development from a point of saying that, well, we need all these people at this particular level and we need them to be great at all these things. And, you know, in other words, to get to that level, you've got to be great at a whole number of different things, you know, according to your own particular competency framework. Look, I do think there's a balance between the two. And it's good to have frameworks, good to have structure. Clearly, larger organisations need that when you're dealing with larger, you know, volumes of people. And you would expect to see this in global organisations. 
Once I recognize that a smaller company allow, can allow itself to be more dynamic and more flexible, there has to be some lessons that we can learn from these entrepreneurs and from an entrepreneurial way of working. Perhaps we don't need to be so productive, so cautious. It brings to mind the quote, fail faster to succeed sooner. That's the kind of philosophy that I'm advocating here. So it seems to me there is this overriding acceptance that it makes common sense to work on people's strengths, at least cognitively. So why is then it not common practice? Let's look at a couple of things. What are the constraints to making it common practice and what really gets in the way? And what can we start to do about it? Firstly, there seems to be this attachment to fixing weaknesses. The feeling that, you know, if you're not actually fixing anything, then are we really making any progress? I'm often faced with situations where people receive their 360 feedback, and even though there might be a whole range of different strengths in there and positive comments, it's amazing how they naturally migrate towards those things that are weaker. There is this perception or belief that I need to fix something. You know, if I'm not actually working on something that is a weakness, then how can I really be making progress? And then, of course, I'll be pleased I'm actually doing something worthwhile and taking this learning seriously. But does this approach really help people accelerate their performance? Are you going to get the most growth in the areas in where you're weak? I don't think so. Certainly not in my experience. You don't have to look too far to perhaps understand the reason why. Years of schooling... Um, conditioned us that we had to learn a whole array of different subjects and we had to have the expectation or at least there was an expectation that we should do well in pretty much in every subject that we took particularly in the latter years of schooling when we're seeking to get our final grades you know we know we need to get good grades in a whole range of subjects to get to the university of our choice this may have been a formula for success in education but it's certainly not for life so you can begin to understand when we arrive in the workplace and when we're presented with a competency framework, the pattern repeats itself, defaulting to the belief that I need to be great at everything. That pattern was deeply implanted in your emotional brain as a child. We can all remember going back to our school days when we had our school reports and we scanned the reports. I certainly did. I'm old enough to have a good old traditional paper report and you know, you, you, you'd scan the report and you'd be thinking to yourself, well, ooh, how am I going to justify or how am I going to explain away my D in maths? And of course, you know, depending on your parents and their parenting style, the deep conditioning started right there. For those well-versed in neuroscience, you will certainly recognize this primitive childhood conditioning. And it certainly helps us understand the root cause of our behavior. So perhaps let's look at this a little further. Firstly, we have to acknowledge our natural propensity as human beings to focus on the things we're not doing so well. We tend to default to focusing on the negative, we don't, what we don't like about ourselves or what others do not like about us. The primitive part of our brain, our survival system, the reptilian brain, is quietly in the background scanning for danger, scanning for things we need to avoid. We move away from fear, we move away from threatening situations, so it's no surprise that we don't respond well to negative feedback or news of weaknesses. We instantly want to take the pain away. We want to fix it. Let me rectify this. And then I can start to feel better. 
I know because I've done it myself multiple times, but it's not actually the thing that's going to allow us to make the most progress. There is this feeling that unless I'm actually fixing something, unless I'm attending to something that is not working, as I said before, then I'm not actually improving. It's a kind of primitive survival response to our to this conditioning. Sure, it might make you feel better to know that you're addressing an area of weakness, but is this really the best strategy? It's almost like we're seeking out the negative so we can fix it so that we can be better liked or perhaps even better accepted. I notice when I give positive feedback to the people I'm coaching, they say, yes, well, you know, that's all very well and good, but what about my weaknesses, Martin? Where can I get better? What do I need to improve on? My reply is always the same. Hey, how about getting better at the things you're already good at? Be exceptional. Be extraordinary. Part of my business is promoting the work of Zengophobin, a research-based business whose tools I've used for a long time, and they're, they're fantastic, and they help leaders get clear on their leadership qualities. One of my favorite quotes from Jack is that great leaders are simply not defined by the absence of weakness, but much more likely the presence of three to five core strengths. I'll probably change the words there slightly, so apologies, Jack. I can't really ever think of any leader I've worked with or any leader I've studied in history that didn't possess or have at least a few weaknesses. So weaknesses are just that, they're weaknesses. So avoid the trap of being sucked into thinking you need to fix them. That's your conditioning that's taken over, not rational, intelligent thought. And by the way, I'm not trying to be idealistic here and say we shouldn't fix things which are critically low. Absolutely uh, the opposite, in fact. If anybody has anything in their feedback or any particular leadership qualities that are exceptionally low or potentially might become a derailer, I'd be the first to say that is going to mask any of the good stuff that you do, so you have to fix them first. I mean, if you're an air traffic controller with a low attention to detail, quite frankly, no one cares how much of a great team player you are. So, yes, you have to absolutely fix the real uh, fatal flaws first. But weaknesses... Everybody has them, but we really only need to worry about fixing them if they're critically low. This brings me to another point. Because the brain is hardwired to protect us against threat, that's exactly how the brain hears critical feedback. No matter how you try and land it by sticking it in a sandwich or better tasting ingredients, the brain doesn't respond by saying, oh, great, thank you so much. I'm so pleased you've taken the time to tell me that I'm a lousy leader. Now we can go and improve. Not that you would say it quite like that, of course, but that's my point. No matter how you do say it, it fires up a threat response in the fight or flight system. I was recently reading about some research by the psychology and business professor, Richard Boyatzis. In one experiment, scientists split students into two groups. To one group, they gave positive coaching, asking the students questions about their dreams, how they'd like to go about achieving them. The scientists then probed the other group about homework and what the students thought they were doing wrong and needed to fix. While those conversations were happening, the scientists hooked up each student 
to a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine to see which parts of the brain were most activated in response to those different sorts of attention. Now, in the brains of the students asked about what they needed to correct, the fight-or-flight system lights up, which mutes the other parts of the brain and allows us only to focus on the information most necessary in that moment to survive. Your brain responds to critical feedback as a threat and narrows its focus. The strong negative emotion produced by criticism or an over-focus on weaknesses literally limits access to the more thinking part of your brain. So therefore, focusing on too much focus, I say, focusing on people's shortcomings doesn't enable learning, it actually impairs it. I have long been a believer that we grow more in our areas of greater ability. We get stronger at the things we're strong at, as long as you're focusing on them, of course. Consider a small plant or a little seedling. You know, the roots are already there. The learning pathways are already there in our brains. The neurological pathways are planted. Our job is to build on that, you know, and by watering that plant, by giving it energy, by giving it food, um, by supporting it, it's going to grow and it's going to deepen those roots. It's going to make more connections and it's going to become stronger as a result. This is where real learning takes place. You already have the established patterns of behavior. Your goal is simply to grow them, to make them stronger. Whereas if you don't have these patterns, well, it's kind of hard, isn't it? to make progress and very frustrating. Simply providing feedback based on your own view of the world generally relieves the recipient confused and less able to do it. We think, you know, we somehow think, oh, if I tell you how it should be done, then they'll simply be able to emulate me and bingo, their behavior improves. I know about this because I've certainly been guilty of this many times before. But I've learned that rather than coming from a sort of deficit mindset, if I can start with a person from a place of their own personal experience, and no matter how badly they have performed the task, there has to be an exception where they've performed that task better. It might be a tiny difference, but it's an important difference, and that's the place to start from. Because then what you're doing is you're building on a connection that already is in the brain and you've got something to work with. And it certainly feels a whole lot better for the person on the receiving end of the, of the coaching or the feedback. Rather than the brain hearing from you, well, I hear what you say, but quite honestly, I don't have a clue how to do it, nor do I think I will be able to do it. So to be clear, I'm not operating under some illusion that all is well in the world and we should never focus on, we should, oh, well, should we, we should only ever focus on the positive, when clearly our jobs as leaders is to improve the performance of those we lead. It's the approach to improvement that needs to change. Organisations and their managers, despite the increasing acceptance that focusing on strengths is a preferred way forward, are still more likely to focus on what is not working in the course of their daily conversations with their teams or when providing appraisals or even way the organisations measure progress. I see evidence of this all the time in the work that I do and with the organisations I work with. We still have more people, in my view, going to a place of work with the main goal of not messing up rather than 
focusing on succeeding. They're putting more energy, more time into not failing or saying the wrong thing in front of their boss than trying to succeed. If your goal is not to fail, that's what you're going to learn about and how not to fail. It's not the same as learning how to succeed. It's a different energy and requires us to allow people to fail in the pursuit of success. But they're not going to do that if they don't feel supported. The other argument I would put to you is this. Consider the fact that when you're extremely strong in one area, there is generally a compensating weakness in another. You ask a 100-meter sprinter Usain Bolt to race over a marathon, and suddenly, well, you know, he's not quite looking like lightning bolt anymore. I'm not sure he'd get the uh, same advertising fees. When someone is off the charts, organized, meticulous in their planning, very structured in their, in their thinking, they're probably not necessarily going to be the most creative or have the ability to deal with ambiguity. If you're a driven individual, work at a very fast place, pace, um, if you're very task-focused, you're possibly not going to be the most patient or demonstrate as much empathy for others. Listen, Usain Bolt undeniably is a fantastic athlete and a much better sprinter than he would ever be over a marathon. And therefore, you wouldn't criticize him for being weak over a marathon because that's not his job. That's not what he's expected to do. So I think the argument here is that we shouldn't be pointing out to people what their weaknesses are when they quite frankly are largely a result of being particularly strong in another area. So this helps us get more comfortable with this idea of not having to go and fix those things that we, you know, well, you know, we're not so good in that area, so maybe I need to go and improve it. And it's, it, in fact, there's a, there's a little um, strategy I've used um, for a few years, and I've shared this with clients many times. And what I ask them to work on is three areas. Firstly, know yourself. Secondly, accept yourself. And thirdly, then you can be yourself. So in terms of know yourself, it's saying, well, who are you? What do you have to offer? What are your strengths? What are your qualities? What's your value system? What do you enjoy doing? Where do you feel most strongest? And really know yourself thoroughly. And this way you can communicate this to people. You can say, this is actually who I am. This is what I have to offer you. The second thing is harder to do, and that is to accept it, is to say, look, I can't be all things to all people. I can't be great at everything. And it's okay. It's absolutely fine. And actually, there's something quite enriching about being able to communicate that to your team or to other colleagues and say, look, here's what you're not going to get with me. You will get this, but you won't get this. This is where you come in to help me to compensate perhaps my uh, um, areas of weakness. That then leads you to something we all want to do, and that is be authentic. Be yourself. No one else can be you. There's only one version of you. We're all unique. But that's, that's where authenticity comes from. It's this release from thinking, I don't need to be perfect. I can let go of that idea. And I know, you know, through parenting, schooling, you know, the perfectionist pattern kicks in. You know, we have a desire to please others. And these are kind of things we need to work through. But these are just some ideas to free yourself up, to get yourself into a better place in accepting this uh, philosophy. Not just for yourself, 
but for others. This, well, this is likely to shape the way you would end up leading and managing others. So my recommendation is you work through that as an exercise. You write down, you know, the know myself, write down who you are, get very clear about it. It'll help shape your brand. It'll help you articulate who you are to others. And then write down what are you willing to accept that you're not? And, you know, what beliefs might you need to tackle there? What professionist patterns might you need to squash and then finally, be yourself, your authentic self. Who actually are you? And be comfortable in articulating that to people and what you are and what you are not. So just to wrap things up here, I just want to share one little um, anecdote with you and there may be a few pointers for you to think about to summarise what we've been talking about today. I'm, I do remember very vividly in my mind when my eldest son uh, was around five or six years old going into the school for the first time sitting on those silly little chairs that the teachers make you sit on while they sit on an adult chair and the conversation kind of goes along the lines of ah yes um, ah Mr Coburn yes of course uh, James Coburn yes yes a uh, very um, very sociable child very talkative uh, well-liked in the class, very creative, very, very creative. Creative writing and um, gets on well with other kids, etc., etc. Yes, we enjoy having it. However, you know, he really can't add up. And his concentration levels, uh, I have to over-explain things. And, uh, yeah, so maybe some things to work on there. Not, not particularly uh, scientific in, in his approach. Uh, you know, so, anyway, the, you know, we go away, fine. And not, not that I didn't know those things, of course. And then, of course, you know, you turn up, you know, maybe two years, and again, two years later, and the form teacher, and it's the first time you see the new form teacher. And you walk in, the same pet process again, slightly bigger chair, uh, slightly more comfortable, less embarrassing. Uh, ah, Mr. Coburn, yes, of course, James Coburn. Yes, yes, we all, yes, we all like James. Yeah, very sociable, actually, yeah. Um, very creative, fantastic creative writing. And very musical, and, um, yeah, it gets on well with other kids. Um, get a little bit distracting at times, tend to distract other kids. And, uh, but, um, you know, quite frankly, really can't add up. He's not particularly uh, scientific. You can kind of see where this is going. I come back two or three years later. He's in a different form, a different year. It's the same story. I don't walk in and they say, ah, Mr. Coburn. Yes, James, of course. Yes, the budding Einstein. Quite frankly, he was pretty hopeless at maths when he was around five or six. And when we got to around his GSCSEs, he was pretty hopeless at maths at that time as well. However, the one thing that stands out, the things he was great at when he was five or six, he got better and better and better at and he became really great at them. And even today, those same things, now he's getting more time to do the things he really wants to do, He's getting stronger and stronger at them. Fundamentally, yes, of course, we can learn things. We can change. We can develop. But do we really change that much? Do we suddenly, you know, completely develop a whole bunch of new neurological pathways that cause us to be some, you know, amazing creative when we weren't before? Probably not. So let's be content Let's be happy with what we have to give in the world, just in the same way as in nature. Nature works because it does what it does well. 
If we allow ourselves and our teams to do what they do well, we'll have a happier and more productive team. So let's just summarize some of the things we've talked about today. We talked about the importance of working within your nature, not against it. We understood a little bit more from, well, how we can learn the lessons from neuroscience and how this helps explain why we feel this need to go and fix things and how too much of a focus on weakness or critical feedback inhibits the brain and impairs our ability to be able to learn. I talked a little bit about making sure your organizational processes, the way you reward people or critique people or appraise people, are aligned to a strength-based approach. And remember, the great leaders are not defined by the absence of weakness. And those very weaknesses that we're describing are often a result of being extremely strong in another area. And then finally, thinking about your brand, thinking about what you are, thinking about that three-point strategy, know yourself, accept yourself, and be yourself. My big wish above everything is that individually, as a team, in your own organization, if we can start not just to know about this, not just to agree with it, not just to nod your head, but to genuinely, genuinely have people coming to work knowing that their talents and strengths are being celebrated, that we can celebrate diversity of those strengths. At its very heart, it raises self-esteem. And if we're raising the self-esteem of people, we're creating happier people, and happier people are more productive people. So I wish you well in this endeavor. And of course, if we can be of any help, drop me a note, or at least let me know your feedback and thoughts on what we've discussed in this podcast. So until next time, have a great time. See you soon.